Okay, firstly, true or false, denying the humanity of Christ is equally as serious an error as denying his deity. True. 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 Yeah, he has to be both God and man. Otherwise, uh, death is really impossible for him. He has to pay the penalty for our our sin. He can only pay the penalty of this of, of for the sin of those whom he became. Number two, Jesus' blood is described by the scripture writers as precious because it was divine blood. False. So why was it precious? What he accomplished for us through his sacrifice. Okay. What was the question? Why? Why was his blood so precious? Why? Why is it described as precious if it's not divine? Yeah, I mean, yes, yeah, because it it's the it's the enormity of the sacrifice, the violent death mm-hmm. uh, accomplished for us. Mm-hmm. Okay, which of the following is true here? D. Okay. Does that ever have D? Yep. Uh, I didn't have D because of C. <laughs> okay. It's the A, B, or C. Because you were here last week for that discussion. Yeah. That okay. So what what was the difference between those three? What 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 are appetites? Firstly. Okay, so so these are we we call these sort of animal appetites. These are the things. These are the 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 basic psychosomatic needs that we have that we act upon. We eat, we drink, we reproduce. Um, and we have some questions about that. Could Jesus have had children? Did he? Uh, was there any sense in which he? could have had an attraction to a young lady and the answer was was yes although it seems pretty clear that he didn't ever marry and that it probably would have been a, a serious complication to his mission but the the idea of him having the uh, the interest uh, or even uh, marrying someone having children is not something that would be out of the purview of the hypothetically possible what, are, what were passions then? Compassion, weeping, uh, emotions. Okay. Can we... So responses to unexpected events. Right. So, so, so more responses to... I, having, the, I mean, those, those, can, those are examples of them, but they're responses to the stimuli of the moment uh, and often are accompanied by surprise. So, you know, it's... Because he wasn't omniscient in his humanity. Right, because he wasn't omniscient in his humanity. You know, if a a dog ran at him barking or something, he would have had this, you know, fight-or-flight kind of response. I mean, these are are passions. Um, He would never have sinned in his passions, but he would have had them. It's not wrong to have passions. And what are affections, then? Right. So, cultivated inclinations towards or aversions, oppositely towards mm-hmm. that which is untrue and un, non-beautiful and that such. Uh, so they're cultivated. So yes, he would have had affections. So he would have had all three of these. Okay. If you, to deny any of these, then I think would would suggest he's not fully human. Number four, Jesus t- faced temptations that were equal to or greater than those faced by ordinary humans. True. True. I put false. Okay. And, and on what? Because of the word greater. Okay. I wondered if somebody might bite on that. Um, the reason I put that down is because there's a sense in that he didn't give in to temptation. Right. He felt a greater weight of temptation than we who do give in. That was that little sapling and tree. Right, that exactly. Right. Yeah, that so that's why I say it, it couldn't be less, no. but it could be more than we experience. So, okay. Well, I think that's a, a bit of a review from last time in his humanity. So we started two weeks ago with his divinity, deity. This last week was his humanity. This week we 
squash them all together here and talk about the hypostatic union of Christ or the person of Christ. So uh, let's let's we and we we've, we've touched on some of the tensions already. We're on page forty-one. We've touched on some of these tensions already, but not all of them. So let's go ahead and uh, work our way through this. I start here by saying that the tension that exists with Christ being both God and man simultaneously is profound. We see him leaving with the words, I am with you always. It's sort of mind-boggling. I'm leaving. I'm here. (laughs) We hear him say that he knows all that the Father is doing, but then, you know, a short time later, that he doesn't know the time that the Father has established for his return. Well, does he know what the Father is doing, or doesn't he know what the Father is doing? Instances of this sort of paradox number in scores. How we meet, how we, how may we explain these? And I'll, I'll start off with this caveat. It, it may not be fully satisfying by the time we're done with this. This is rather a complex thing. There's no, there's no pertinent analogy that we can use to make a comparison. This is a unique situation. And so trying to explain it is difficult and trying to understand it, uh, more, more difficult still. So, uh, so this is, this is, this is not going to be uh, a, a, a topic that we're always that we're going to go away from confident of every detail uh, that we uh, that we're that we're talking about. Um, so it might not be fully satisfying, but in the end, there are certain inscrutabilities about the union of God and man that will persist. But it's the legitimate area of study with significant theological implications, and we ought to probe this doctrine so far as the Bible allows. And this is something I I sort of stress whenever I teach systematic theology. I think people sometimes go too quickly to, this is a mystery, sort of a hands-off approach to the the topic, because I can't, because because this isn't ultimately understandable, I'm not going to even make a stab at it. Uh, but here, here we have this contrast. You know, there are certain things about the person of Christ that are going to be mind-bogglingly impossible to explain. Nonetheless, we find Paul singling out the idea of knowing Christ as one of the most important things he can possibly do, and I think it includes this and who he is, and, and, and you know what makes him tick. So our primary guide in this matter is, of course, the Bible. But we also recognize the Second Council of Chalcedon in 451 as an especially incisive summary of the biblical material on the topic. If we can um, summarize this in a single sentence, very important sentence here for Doctrine of Christology, Chalcedon instructs us neither to confound Christ's natures nor divide his person. Okay, so that's that's sort of our governing rubric as we as we work through it. That we don't want to we don't want to conflate his natures. We don't want to make him a hybrid God man. He is both God and man, and those don't mix. At the same time, the person that controls them both cannot be divided. Okay, so we we can't say that he has two. There are not two persons here, and so that's. That's sort of the uh, the rubric that we're going to try and follow and see if we can't do this successfully. We really need to start out by giving a few definitions here. Um, nature and person. Okay, so we've talked about a human nature, divine person nature, and then we said a person. So how do we define these? And these are these are words that have been bandied around in theology for a long, long time. So, uh, so, so long that there's actually Greek and Latin words to, to go along with these because of it. When I say nature, I mean the complex of attributes that comprises the essence or the substance or form of a thing. So Greek in the Bible uses usia, the isness of a thing. It's, it's actually a form of the, the word, the verb to be. So it's the isness of a thing or the form of a thing. <clears throat> it includes these qualities which make something what it is. 
qualities without which it would cease to be that thing. So, for instance, a mammal by nature has a backbone, produces milk, has hair and fur, it's warm-blooded. If you have something that doesn't have those features, it is not by nature a mammal. Same with fish and birds. Take any of those features away, they are no longer what they what you think they were. They are not that if they don't do these things. I mean, we have these definitions about the nature of a mammal or a fish or a bird. Now, these are, I mean, these these definitions are somewhat arbitrary. Science has assigned them, uh, but we we also can speak in terms of what makes a human a human, and what makes God God. Okay, by person. We mean an individual instantiation of a form or substance that is relational to other instantiations of that form or substance. Okay, so what I mean by that, okay, we know that what a dog is by its nature. Okay, so uh, if we want to identify an animal, see this animal running past, is that a dog? Okay, how do we know it's a dog? Well, we, there are certain features that we look for. If we find all those features, we say that's a dog. Okay, So a, a person then would be an instantiation of that, a specific one. Okay, Now normally we limit the word person to, to sentient beings, okay, relational beings. And so uh, this, that really only works with personal substances. So we could use it with angels, with God with humans and pretty much nothing else if we're going to assign a a personhood, okay? So the personhood is restricted in Christian theology to forms with higher functions such as reason, volition, affections, morality, and the like. Remember, we had that list of uh, functions of personhood in Systematic 2. So if we were to try and define God, we would, you know, we would, we would, you know, give a list of of attributes. Okay, this is this is how we would know God is God. Now, when we talk about a person, we're talking about an instantiation of God, a re- that is relational to other instantiations of God. So, one instantiation of God is the Father. Another instantiation of the God is the Son, another instantiation is the Spirit, and they are relational to one another. We can do the same thing, of course, with humans. If we want to define what a human is, we could define what human nature entails, and we would say, you know, Dave is an instantiation of humanity, Rich is an instantiation of humanity, uh, and so on and forth. We go around the room. Each one of us is a person who is of a specific nature, Okay. So when we say that God has two natures, he is both human and divine, we're saying that he has all the qualities and characteristics and features of each of those, human and divine, but we're saying that there's only one person. The instantiation that emerges is a singular instantiation that comes from both. He's an instantiation of both in his person. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Okay. We normally use these terms, nature and person, in discussions of the Trinity, where we find the orthodox affirmation that God exists as three persons, sharing a common nature. Okay, so there's a nature, a divine nature. It's shared by three persons within the Godhead. But we can also affirm here in Christology that Jesus Christ consists of a single person commanding two disparate natures. Okay, so one person, two natures. No, you. we didn't use the word essence and nature interchangeably. Did yeah, we did. Essence, substance, or form. Essence, substance, form, or nature are all synonymous. So if they're number one. Okay. But person person is a relational instantiation of a nature. Okay. What would you say was synonymous essence? Uh, nature, essence, substance, and form. Because back to the dog analogy, and I know it doesn't fit right. totally, but, doesn't it? Right. But 
my dog's a dog, but he has a personality different than the dog I had before. Right. But yeah. so we're using personhood, meaning human. Yeah. Yeah, in, in theory, we can talk about instanti- yeah, we can talk about instantiations of dogness and say there's there's individual relational dogs, but we don't typically call them persons just because they don't have enough of these higher functions to so we could qualify that term person to image of God. Yeah, at least per, yeah, personal beings. What, again, part of our question is whether angels are in the image of God, but yeah. uh, it, they'd have to have a certain higher. The, remember those functions we listed, yeah. and it seems to apply to God, angels, and humans. <clears throat> you, you wouldn't you wouldn't think of yeah. Sometimes we talk about animals having personality, but they're not. But they but they don't have these higher functions of personhood. Yeah. Uh, so. Okay, so now let's look at these terms relative to Jesus Christ. Jesus has two natures, one divine and one human, and we see them both very neatly in Philippians 2, 6, and 7. Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and added to himself the very nature of a human servant. Okay, so he had one, he was one nature, he added to himself a second nature. But those two natures are commanded by the same person. So in Romans 1, he was made of the seed of David, so he assumes a human nature, but simultaneously he is the son of God, a reference to his divine nature. He is both Christ according to the flesh and God overall. We don't. He doesn't mix and 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 become. Yeah, he, he's not. A, he's not a hybrid being. He's he's both. The same person who says "I am" can say "I thirst." So the same self same person who says "I am" affirms himself to be God also says "I thirst" and affirms himself to be human. God never thirsts. First Corinthians two eight. They crucified the Lord of Glory. Now Jesus never refers to himself in the plural. He distinguishes himself from other men and from God the Father, but not from himself. So he never distinguishes between the natures in his own person or attributes certain activities to just one of them. His one person had the experience of both natures. But he spoke seamlessly of those disparate experience, experiences as his experiences, singular experiences. Okay? So, how does this union take place? Okay. Slow me down anytime this, this becomes too heavy here. So the person of Christ, who is sometimes called the theanthropic person, the God-man, governs a union of the two natures of Christ without admixture of those two natures, often referred to as the hypostatic union. By this we mean God remained very God of very God and very man of very man, fully and truly both forms simultaneously without mixing them. And by by means of the union, the natures are kept distinct. Hypostatic union is not manifest as a mixture or a conflation, which would have resulted in a new nature, a a, a previously unknown nature that is neither divine nor human, but some hybrid of the two. Uh, the, The Westminster Confession describes it this way, as consisting neither of conversion... There's no change in the nations, no constitutional change, or a confusion, no no bleeding into each other. Okay, so no transmutation, no subsumption of one into the other. So there's no confusion of the two natures, nor a constitution of a new nature. And atonement depends upon God, Christ, being both simultaneously. A mixture would be of no value. He has to be a human to die for humans. 
And so for him to be a, a superhuman wouldn't help us. He can only die for that which he became. And so, okay, so so by this union, human experiences could be had by the one person without passing over elements of his human essence to the divine. Okay, so God may be said to experience ignorance or hunger, but it would be incorrect to say that God was ignorant and hungry. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Okay, he experiences them, he understands them, because his one person who governs both natures understands this through his humanity. His deity does not know hunger. His humanity knows hunger, but since there's a single person that governs both of those uh, those natures, the, the, the singular person, which is divine, right, knows hunger, knows, uh, knows uh, um, limitations, even know, we can even say he knows death, he understands death, but I think it would be wrong to say he was ignorant or impotent or that he died. Okay? Does that, does that, does that, does that make sense? God didn't die. Likewise, certain divine powers could be exhibited in Christ's humanity without imparting the whole corpus of God's perfections to his humanity. So, for instance, uh, he is given specific powers as the Logos determines. So God, so the, the Logos can feed certain information into the human brain of Jesus so he knows something that he couldn't ordinarily know. Or is able to break apart bread, and the bread keeps multiplying. Okay. Uh, I've got a question. Yeah. You just mentioned so so God couldn't die. So when there was the death of Christ, so did that union separate then? No, we'll we'll come to that in just a minute here. Okay. That's yeah. heresy. <laughs> right. Yeah. The Nestorianism is. We were just talking about that before you came in. Nestorianism is the idea that God left. When Jesus went to the cross, God, the, the God part of him left and left him just a human on the cross. And so God is, just has absolutely no part at all in the death. But that doesn't work because he's a single person. You can't just, you know, the, the, the divine just can't just leave. Uh, and if he did, the death would be useless to us. So, so, so it's not as though we can't, we can't we can't separate the two. The, the two the two natures are are glued together permanently, but but they don't they don't mix. We'll we'll talk about a little bit more about that in just a minute here. I promise. Okay. So okay, so where were we? Um, so yeah, he, he can he can have these divine powers exhibited in his humanity without imparting God's perfections to his humanity. So it would be incorrect to say that Jesus, which is the human name we give to Christ, that Jesus is omnipresent. That's a, there's a that's a that's the Lutherans are rather famous for that that. Uh, that the that the human Jesus is omnipresent, so that when you take that 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 uh, that wafer there, his 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 presence is in with and under that wafer, um, and so there's a, a really heightened value to that. that. That's special bread. It's not just ordinary bread. It's special bread um, because of the omnipresence of Jesus. He is, he is humanly omnipresent in the Lutheran view, and that's 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 incorrect. Uh, we do, we don't we don't we don't want to make the human have all of the features of the divine nature. Okay, that that doesn't doesn't work. He cannot have all of the divine attributes in his humanity. But it does bleed over at times. Well, God can you know the Holy Spirit the Holy Spirit or the Logos can actually feed bits of data. But it would never, he would never give to him the perfection of, of omniscience, if I can put it that way. He doesn't have the perfections of God in his humanity. He might have, he, the, the Lagos can feed him information he couldn't ordinarily have. 
but he wouldn't give him the attribute of omniscience or omnipresence in his humanity. So as he sits on the right hand of God, what's his state? Well, yeah, that's a that's a good question. And in fact, I, I, it's a question I, I I don't have a complete answer to. Um, it does it does seem that uh, that there is as great a communication between the two as possible. But but he remains human, and he remains divine. And we know this because that's the only reason he can be an effective high priest for us, right? Because there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So the the, the humanity and divinity of, of Christ remain in some sense distinct here, although I, I don't know that I can give you a clean answer on exactly what's different about him now over and against what the way he was during his first advent. But the, but the distinctions are still there. So we'll find out someday. Yeah. The, the human nature, yeah. that changes, though, right? Because now there's a, a glorified different body. Yes, it's glorified, but it's still human, right? right. Okay. It's, a, it's as good as human can get, mm-hmm. but it's still human. And it's it's not as though that that body is now on my present. The body's some it's at, like it's at the right hand of the throne of God. So his humanity is only in one place. It's localized and always will be because that's that's a feature of of the human nature that simply cannot be. So he'll be the only form of God we'll be able to look upon. That's how I would understand it. Yeah, see, we we can look upon him, and we'd actually have to go wherever he is in order to look upon him. He's not everywhere. Now, I have I have inklings that he can move around pretty fast, but I but he's in one place in his humanity. Yeah, because when he appeared when he appeared to the disciples, it's yeah. be that he... maybe right. Yeah, we yeah. talked about that last time. Was it last time or time before? So now I'm confused. But uh, <laughs> but 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 it does. But he wasn't everywhere. Yeah, he wasn't. He it's was not localized. Yeah, it's not as though he was talking to Peter on the seashore and John, you know, in town. He he was one. He was in one place. So I I think I understand better now when so when he took on human nature, he is. Um, omniscience isn't a property of the type or the nature of humanity, so it would be impossible for him to have that ability, right, in his humanity. Yeah, it would. It would seem that there's always this question: is okay. So in his now in his glorified state, does he know everything in his humanity? I, I, I'm hesitant to answer that question. I'm, I'm just not sure. I'm, I feel safe answering it either way. Um, but certainly the other attributes, I mean, it certainly is omnipresence. I mean, that, that, that one's usually a, an, e, an easier one to work with. Uh, or his eternity. It's not as though he's timeless in his humanity. He, he, he doesn't flit around in time back and forth. He's, 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 he's bound by space. He's bound by time. Because that's, that's inherent. In that's, that's inherent to the human condition, the human nature. So, so those those things can't those things aren't just he, he doesn't just become sort of a super a superman or some sort of a hybrid being even when he gets to heaven there those distinctions continue those con- distinctions remain. Okay, and so while Christ rarely speaks of his actions variously as according to the flesh or according to the divine you know he said i don't know in my human brain when i'm when i'm when i'm going to be coming back again even though i as the logos know uh, so you, you don't you don't see him doing this we're we're able to do that from a distance we're actually able to say he's speaking with respect to his humanity here he's speaking with respect to his divinity here uh, but but he but he rarely makes that distinction 
So while the one person of Christ may say, I am with you always, it would be incorrect to say that the human form of Jesus is present with us always. Because if in this case, he is speaking with respect to his divine form. In his divinity, he's with us always. He's in his room, watching, probably with a knowing smile on his face. He was like, wow. <laughs> Except there is no face. Um, so, <laughs> um, but in his humanity, he's, he's not here. He's not in this room in his humanity. Oppositely, when the one person of Christ says, I thirst, or I can't, or I don't know, it would be incorrect to speak of need, impotence, or ignorance within the divine form. Because in these cases... Christ is speaking with respect to his humanity. And even when Christ seems to mix the two, we shouldn't take this in an absolute sense. So when Jesus speaks of raising his body back to life, he is saying that by his divine power, he's going to raise to life his human body. <laughs> uh, I mean, even there, you can distinguish there. When Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 2 of the crucifixion of the Lord of glory, we must understand this as the crucifixion of the human form of that person who has always existed as Lord of glory. Okay, so I think we can, we can, we can make those, those kinds of distinctions uh, as we read. We don't want to, to mix them and say that the divinity, God, that Christ died with respect to his divinity. That would be absolutely wrong in any sense. Okay? Does that make sense? So, Jesus is not limited because he is God today. Well, Jesus, I would say yes, is in some sense is limited. The human form of Jesus is limited. Yeah, and and, and maybe maybe you're not intending to do that. Typically when we say Jesus, it's sort of I don't know that this necessarily follows exactly in the scriptures, but Jesus is usually the name given to the human humanity. Human, it's the human name of Jesus. Um, the Logos is the divine name for Jesus, and then Christ is sort of the theanthropic name for his person. Okay, so that that's usually the rubric I use. So if I'm talking about the human Jesus, I usually say Jesus. So is Jesus limited? Yes. Because he's not everywhere, and he's not every time. I'm just trying to think of the purpose, you know, moving forward. I mean, after the next life. Yeah. For the the purpose is so that he can be a an appropriate high priest because he thoroughly knows us as as and 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 I think that again and and not only can he be a good high priest, but he is able to be someone who can be related to us. We can be related to him. We We can have fellowship with him. Well, perhaps, perhaps not, but but certainly we'll need the companionship. We'll need to, we'll need to, we'll need, need to have someone who understands us to have a conversation with. God as God can't connect with us as humans without that human form. So I, th- I think it's necessary to the fellowship of God with man to have to have that continue. That makes sense. So when God walked in the garden, we said that was a pre-incarnated. Yeah, that's. That's to me the, the the only conclusion I can come to because no one has ever seen God at any time except God the one and only. So the only form of God that can be seen is this second person of the Trinity who takes human form. That's the only way to see God is for him to take on human form or some other form, but, but human form is what we're really after. God the Father never takes on a form that's visible. We don't. We don't actually speak in ever in terms of the Father being visible to us. So, so when Moses on the mountain then his, saw his backside, yes, well, yeah, I, I, I think the 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 
point that what what Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see. I, I think what he's asking for is, can I just, can I have a full manifestation of who God is? And the answer is no. You couldn't survive that. Okay. But I will let you see my, my hinder parts, my back. I don't know that, that that's, I, I still don't think that's the God the Father. It's just that he saw a manifestation of the glory greater than most of us get a chance to see with the result that his face glowed. Like Shekinah glory? No. And it's hard to say exactly what he saw, but, but something spectacular. Well, I remember when, you know, when at the transfiguration of Jesus Christ, Jesus face shone like the sun and I can imagine if the disciples were watching him you know could have had some deleterious effects on their provision perhaps or or maybe gotten you know gotten a a burn on the face or something Um, and so so they saw but that was still Jesus it was still a, a, a more glorious manifestation of Jesus than the rest of the disciples had seen up till that point but still, it's, I still think it's Jesus. It's just a glorified appearance. Obviously, people can look upon God and live, because it's been done multiple times through Scripture, right? You know, Isaiah saw God and lived. He was at the right, you know. Um, and so, 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 so it can be done. But what can't be seen is a full manifestation of the divine glory. So, remember Isaiah thought he had died, right? I've uh, I've seen I've seen the Lord, and 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 the angels like no 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 no, <laughs> you got it wrong. Yeah, it, you won't necessarily die just because you saw God. Um, here, with this touch of tongue, you'll be fit to see God. Um, so so it's 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 not that you cannot see. This manifestation of God, you just can't see a full manifestation of the divine glory. Okay, number three here. The seed of the one indivisible person of Christ is in the Lagos or the divine nature. So the person of Christ is a divine person. Remember, his person exists from eternity. And it's imported into the body, right? That was the whole point of the virgin, part of the point of the virgin birth is so that there wouldn't be a separate person produced because if there had been a separate person, then you'd have this battle between the two persons or a schizophrenia. Okay, so what Mary had to produce was an impersonal human nature to which the divine person was attached. So there's a single person and that person is divine. So there's a sense here in which the divine nature or the logos is higher than the human nature. Jesus is the God-man. We would never call him the man-god. There's there's a significant difference between the two. In the incarnation, the eternal second person of God took upon himself an impersonal human nature His personhood is fundamentally divine and exercises control at all points over his humanity. This is Shed's words. Shed's always a little bit dense here, so hang on. That the divinity and not the humanity is dominant and controlling in Christ's person is proved by the fact that his acts of power were regulated by it. If the Logos so determined... Jesus Christ was powerless. If the Lagos so determined, Jesus Christ was all-powerful. When the divine nature withdrew its support from the human, the latter was as helpless as as, as it is in an ordinary human creature. And when the divine nature imparted its power, the human nature became mighty in the word deep. When the Lagos so pleased, Jesus of Nazareth could no more be taken by human hands and nailed to the cross than the eternal trinity could be. And when the Lagos was so pleased, he could be arrested without resistance and be led like a lamb to the slaughter. This is taught repeatedly in the Gospels. Again, the knowledge of the God-man depended upon the divine nature for its amount. And this proves that the divinity is the dominant in his person. 
the human mind of Jesus Christ stood in a somewhat similar relation to the Lagos that the mind of a prophet does to God. Though not the same in all respects, because the Logos and the human mind in the instance of Jesus Christ constitute a single person. While the Holy Spirit and the inspired prophet are two persons, yet in respect to the point of dependence for knowledge, there is an exact similarity. As the prophet Isaiah could know no more of the secret things of God than it pleased the Holy Spirit to disclose to him, so the human mind of Christ could know no more of these same divine secrets than the illumination of the Lagos made known. Which explains, then, why Jesus could claim ignorance of the time of the Second Coming. In his humanity, he didn't know. I mean, he, he, could, he could look through the Old Testament all day long and not know when it is. I mean, just remember, that's the end, end of Daniel, right? The question, of when are these things going to be? And the answer, shut the book, you don't get to know that. So that's the, it's the same answer Jesus got when he read Daniel. He says, yeah, I know. I know that's me. I know I'm coming back, but I don't know when. Because that, that bit of data hasn't been, hasn't been divulged to me. Does that make sense? Does that follow? Good. Shed is, Shed is a way. I mean, you have to read slowly, but, but he, uh, but, uh, he, 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 he really can help. He, he's very helpful. It's just, I can't really assign it because it's just tremendously long and very dense. You would, you would hate me. If I <laughs> it's more dense than Raymond. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It would make, it would make uh, Raymond look like Dr. Seuss. <laughs> Maybe he look like baby Huey. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so because of this divine dominance in Christ's theanthropic personhood, it is incorrect to designate to the human Jesus what is true only in Christ's divinity. So that Jesus is omnipresent is, is improper. It is, however, notionally defensible, okay, notionally defensible to say with John Murray that he may be designated in terms of his deity what is predicated when what is predicated is true only in virtue of his divine nature. Okay, so there's a difference between the two. So we can never say that his hum- humanity is omnipresent, but it is possible to say that God, since his person is divine, actually experiences all of his human experiences. We could say, for instance, that God died, or that God was ignorant, even though these seem rather cringeworthy statements. Say God is ignorant, uh, and we never see anything like this bluntly stated in scripture. Scripture, uh, we we never find anywhere that God died in scripture. Uh, that that language is never used. So why is it cringeworthy? Well. What is logically Im- well? Well, let me before we get there. As as such, what is logically impossible that God is simultaneously both a and not a, both mortal and import- immortal, is in a narrow sense theologically defensible. Which is why Wesley says, "Tis mystery all the immortal dies." At least with appropriate qualification. But see if I can't qualify this. When I say God died. There's a huge interpretive question that needs to be answered when I make that statement. And the only way I can let people know what I mean by that is to qualify myself. I could mean that the whole divine nature died. Or I could simply mean that Christ's divine person experienced death. Because both his divine nature and and person are properly denied, divine. So if I mean the latter, that his divine person experienced death, my statement that God died is credible. The singular person of Christ, which is fundamentally divine, he's the God-man, not the man-God, experienced vulnerability to death through his human nature without inculpating his divine nature. But if I mean the former, that his divine nature died, then the statement is emphatically wrong. The divine nature was not 
and by definition cannot ever be made mortal or ignorant or impotent or localized or needy. None of these things apply to God. So I cannot say that God in his nature experienced any of these things, but I can say that God in the second person of the Godhead experienced through his humanity these experiences. Okay? But the fact is that I have to explain that in order to be careful. I, I, I'm inclined to say, let's just not make the unqualified statement that God died because it's such a confusing one. And and, and the reason I can say that with, with such confidence, even though I say it's theologically okay to say that God died, but I never do, because the Bible does. The Bible never wears, never anywhere says God died. Uh, and it's, it seems like there, here's, there's, a, there's an important reason for that, because it would be a very confusing statement to make. But when a human dies, no human soul dies, other than eternal Well, yeah, death. well, it is, it's in that it is part of your humanity, yes. It does experience separation from, from God, but you still have a living soul, whether it's right, well, death. Right, but only in, in, in its humanity, since it only has a humanity, uh, there there is this, this this separation in its in its in its humanity. The the, the the I mean, the soul never ceases to exist, but that's not what death is. Right. But I, that's what I'm sort of thinking. That when we say when you say God died, are we talking the same type of well using death? A different term. Than well, yeah, see, that, there's there's the problem. There's there's no definition of death that works for for God okay. because because I mean we can't talk about physical death because he doesn't he doesn't have corporeality, so he can't die. Because when he, he said into my, into your hands I commend my spirit, right? Jesus says that. So what happened there? His 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 body went to the tomb. His his uh, his soul, his immaterial, went somewhere else. We'll, we'll debate. There's a debate as to where he went. Yeah. So I, I understand he went to Sheol. He went. He descended to hell. It's the, uh, but that's different than his. That's the human part versus his deity. As I understand his deity, it would have had to stay with both parts. Hmm. Which is why I think that uh, he can say, "My, uh, you would not allow my body to see decay." Now, why would that be? I mean, if he, if I mean, if his body got into this tomb for three days, why didn't it see decay? If it was an ordinary, well, because you would not let it, because you were there, you, know, you would not allow my body to see decay. So the, so the, so the, so the personhood of Jesus is attached to both his material and his immaterial, and must remain that way. So it's, so it is different in that yeah. sense. As they added to this confusion, we wanted that, <laughs> is the fact that the proposal of vulnerability in God stands today as a principal error in, a, in, 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 in when we're talking about the nature of Christ's atonement. And we're going to talk about that later. There's a theory of atonement uh, championed by a fellow by the name of Jürgen Moltmann who has a book, The Crucified God, um, who, who says that when... The, that when Christ, okay, okay, I'll, I'll explain here. So, so God throughout the Old Testament was trying to get people to this. This is this is Moltmann's view in a nutshell. In the Old Testament, God was trying to uh, get people to fall in line, and He was doing it by punishing them relentlessly whenever they did something wrong, and and never seemed to be successful in turning anybody around because because his his method wasn't working. And so he finally, in frustration, sends his son down in order to try and figure out what people are like. Okay, so Jesus comes and he and and he works and lives and among among these people and 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 you know progresses through his life and just as he reaches the cross it dawns on him that the need of humanity was not to be punished into obedience, no, beaten into compliance to what God. He needs to be. He needs to be 
comforted. He needs to have someone come alongside and and relate with him, to empathize, to sympathize, in, in, and to 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 effect justice and social uh, social improvement and such. And so God realizes right at the cusp of the crucifixion that this is the approach he should have been using all along. Okay, and um, and so and then and then he promptly dies, and he experiences death to a degree that no human ever could. And 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 the understanding is here is that the that there was a a rift, a tear in the Trinity. Uh, God was killed. They were they were they were forcibly separated from one another for a for a period of time. Then and then. You know, Christ actually overcomes it, comes back, and so then the the the, the mission of, of of God changes from that point forward. Uh, the mission of the church is now uh, uh, is now a, a social and political and an empathetic one, and so that's what Christianity should be all about. Well, that's obviously a, a problematic view of the atonement here, uh, but it rests on, and in fact. Jürgen Moltmann says that the fundamental, most important thing of all Christianity is that God died. Okay, that that's that's that that is the thing that made God change His approach and make Christianity a reality. And so, because that is such a dominant understanding of the atonement that's around in the world today. I am I am even more hesitant to say that God died. Again, it is possible theologically to say it, as long as I qualify it. But one, I don't have enough time to qualify it normally. And two, it is so easily misunderstood as something that is radically wrong that uh, my inclination is, is to not make the statement myself uh, that God died. So where would we where would we likely run into this kind of view, like in popular? Every, anywhere you meet on the anybody you meet on the street is almost certain. I, I would say you know eight times out of ten that's what people think Christians are supposed to be doing, and that's what the church is supposed to be doing. They're supposed to be empathizing with humanity and dispensing social justice and 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 social graces. Uh, Helping people and, and so on and so forth, not telling them, "Hey, if you don't repent, you're going to hell." No, that's not what. That's not what the sure, church. That, yeah, that kind of thing. That, yeah, that that might have happened. That might have gone and gone over in the Old Testament, but not in the Christian church. No, never. So it's love wins. Yeah, and, and and I think if you, I really think if you asked. Ten random people on the street. You know, why did God die? Why did why why did Jesus die on the cross? You'll get some answer that's something like that. Maybe not you know as quite as carefully put, but they'll say, yeah, God, so so He could empathize with us, so He could understand us, so He could so He could help us, so He could so He could you know so He could give us a good example of how we're supposed to treat each other. And I think eight, probably eight out of ten people would say give that answer. I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, statistics are made up on the spot normally, right? But I, I'm guessing that a pretty good percentage of people would give an an answer of that nature. I would guess that half wouldn't even believe he was God. He was just a good man. Right, but 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 still, he died, and he died for some reason. Why did he die? Why why is this important? Why is this important? And usually they would at at best they're going to say, well, at least he was he was kind of a good example. He was he was a good guy. And so yeah, the world recognizes this now. Yeah, the world recognizes recognizes that his birthday. Yeah, the world recognizes that Jesus and 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 even even you know even most people will say he was a good guy. Yeah, that's good. They don't, there's very few people who would say just that Jesus, he was just a wretched fellow. No, most people have, you know, positive thoughts about Jesus. Yeah, even like a, even like a Muslim has positive thoughts about Jesus. He's a, he, was a, he was a fine man, a good prophet. And so most people have a, a, have a good view about Jesus. They know he died historically. And if you ask them why, 
if they've thought about a reason at all, it'll probably come out something like that. More more often than not, at least in our in our Western culture. Okay, so that I pretty much just stated my conclusion. So nothing more to say here, right? Okay, we good. Few points here. This hypostatic union is per, uh, permanent. We've already said this already, but let's let's prove it. The hypostatic union survived Jesus' passion. The divine person did not abandon Jesus on the cross, but instead, at all points, continued to supply his personhood, even in death. The divine person attended Jesus' parts, accompanying his immaterial to Shaol Hades and accompanying his body to the grave, which explains perhaps, perhaps, it's, I don't know that this is a necessary conclusion, but it's it's a good explanation as to why his body didn't see decay. His, his, because his logos wouldn't let it. Here again is shed. Now, the God-man existed between the crucifixion and the resurrection, notwithstanding the separation between the human soul and body, as truly as he did before, or as he does this instant. And this is because it was the immutable divinity and not the mutable humanity which constitutes the foundation of his personality. Okay, So the hypostatic union survives his death, burial, and resurrection. And, in fact, the hypostatic union survives... The, the reversal of the kenosis. You know, now he's he is ascended and is at the right hand of the the of, of the throne of his father and has been glorified to a greater degree even than after he rose from the dead. So he's he's at, he's a, he's been highly exalted and given a name above every name. Nonetheless, he's still human uh, because when we find this affirmed here, Romans nine five. Jesus Christ, according to the flesh, is God over all, forever praised. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Note the present tense here. When Paul writes this, 30 years after Jesus leaves, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. It continues to. Hebrews 4, we have a great high priest who has ascended to the heaven, Jesus the Son of God, who is able to empathize with our weaknesses, because he's still human. Hebrews 7, further, uh, because Jesus lives forever, notice his human name here, he has a permanent priesthood. So all of these suggest here that his hypostatic union survives. He is still the God-man. His humanity still exhibits some limitations, not as many limitations apparently as he did on Earth, but he is still time-bound and space-bound in his humanity. Uh, But like I say, I'm not sure I'm completely confident speaking to every one of his attributes. That's a good question that was asked, and I'm I'm still mulling it over. (laughs) Who asked that? that? Was that you, Rich? I can't remember who asked that. But. Know, been it's probably Dave. He's got all the good questions. <laughs> <laughs> he should have been the attorney. <laughs> so why then is it necessary that we be so, you know, so, so so precise here about this? Well, because the hypostatic union is necessary to Christ's whole mediatorial work, including two elements, his death and his ongoing mediation. Okay. Now John Owen, in his death of Christ, death and the death of Christ, makes much of the fact that the work of the priest is larger than the offering of sacrifices. In fact, one might even argue that the sacrifices were a means to the greater function of the priest. Namely, communication and fellowship between God and man. Uh, I, I often say that the, uh, the, the, the great neglected piece of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, if it's studied at all, is the fellowship meal. 
uh, the, the fellowship meal is just ever so important because after the sacrifice was made, what happened then was that there was a joyful feast where the priest was invited with the with the, the 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 one who brought the sacrifices to eat together and it was a picture of the communion and the community that was had uh, not between not just between the people and the priest but the people and the priest the, and 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 the, and the one to whom the priest was 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 mediating okay so the priest was a you know he was a mediator between god and man not as as good a mediator as Jesus was. Nonetheless, he was a mediator. And then this feast that took place was really the culmination of the sacrificial system. I mean, granted that the, the slaying of the uh, of the the animal and the application of the blood is sort of the centerpiece of what's going on in the sacrifices, but the climax is the meal. Okay? And I think that's the same thing that's true of, of the of of the work of Christ. Okay, there's there's a central work here, historically, of his death on the cross. But that's not the climax of the ministry of Christ. The climax of Christ is this exalted situation in which he has fellowship with us eternally. And I think if we fixate too much on what he's doing to save us, we, we might miss what the climax is. The climax is enjoying fellowship with him forever. Okay. So, uh, so both his death and his priestly mediation require that he be human, uh, be, be, have this hypostatic union. Why was his? Why was it necessary to his death? Well, the sacrifice had to involve one who is truly man. Only the death of a human could justly satisfy the wrath of God against capital crimes incurred by humanity. God requires a death of a being with the self-same nature as the one whose sin is being atoned. Why do I say that? Because that's what the scriptures say, Romans 5. Just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and by and in this way death came to all men because all sinned, and if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did the God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Okay, so in order for there to be yeah, sin enters through one man, sin is taken away through one man. It has to just, just as it was one man brought it in, so also it must be one man who takes it out. Okay, that's the only way it can be done. So just as through the disobedience of one man many were made sinners, so also the obedience of the one man uh, results in many being made righteous. Same thing is said in 1 Corinthians 15, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So he has to be a man in order for his death to have any meaning. Hebrews 2, since the children have death, uh, flesh, and blood, he too had to share in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and make atonement for the sins of the people. So it had to be a man, it had to be a righteous man. And one who is himself a sinner can't pay for the sins of someone else. Hebrews 7. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted to the heavens. This is unlike the other high priests that are that dot the Old Testament, who are just ordinary sinful humans. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer a sacrifice day after day, first for his own sins... And then for the sins of the people, he sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak. But the oath which came after the law appointed the son who has been made perfect forever. So he had to be a man, he had to be a righteous man. 
The number three, the sacrifice had to involve one who is truly God. Because only by divine participation in the sacrifice could that sacrifice have expansive value for the many. Okay, let's see if we can't see this. By his unique experience, this is my translation, but I'm following a, a, a commentator named Oswald who, who makes, makes, makes this the uh, translation. By his unique experience, my righteous one shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will grant him a portion with the great. He shall be highly lifted, uh, high, lifted up and highly exalted. And I will divide the spoil. So here's the argument. He is exalted to the highest place or equality with God and given the divine privilege of dispensing the spoils. Because he poured out his soul unto death and bore the sins of the many. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes. Okay, so note the argument. It had to be the death of the son in order for there to be a whosoever. Okay. He gave his only beloved son in order that whoever believes shall not perish but have everlasting life. And Bettner summarizes it this way. It was necessary that the redeemer of mankind be both human and divine. It was necessary that he be human if he was really to take man's place and suffer and die, for deity as such was not capable of that. And it was necessary that he should be divine if his suffering and death were to have infinite value. I might hesitate with infinite there, but I think uh, all in all that statement is, is helpful. Okay? We'll get this next point, and I think we'll be done. This letter B point here. Also, his heat priestly mediation requires that he remain the God-man. We saw that Job. Job needed a mediator who was both God and mortal man, one who could lay his hand on both parties and mediate between them. Christ's continued experience, we just read these verses here, in human form, renders him a sympathetic and merciful high priest, because he's still a human. John 5, his role as adjudicant, you know, the judge, is bestowed on him because he remains a son of man. Because he remains human, he's the mediator and judge. And so as judge, he's a mediator of the law of God. So uh, don't, I mean, we talk about him being a judge, but I think we still have mediation in view here. In 1 Timothy 2.5, there's only one suitable mediator between God and men, and that's the man, Christ Jesus. Okay? So, we didn't quite get through this, this section here, uh, but uh, uh, we'll, we'll finish this up next time and jump into uh, next week. We'll start in to the work of Christ, talk about uh, the death of Christ, what is atonement, what are some of the popular theories about the atonement, what's the extent of the atonement, for whom did Christ die, uh, and then we'll also talk, at least in brief, about the uh, resurrection, ascension, and the second coming of Christ as well. So, that's our plan moving forward. Any comments, questions as we wrap things up tonight? That was easy enough to understand. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. See you next week then.